0: names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's
1: copyright infringement.
0: Welcome to our season six grand finale, Ad Shashir, episode 72. We are here in a possibly closed universe, chilling in a little group of galaxies we call the Local Group, which includes our own Milky Way galaxy, twirling around some giant-ass black hole, trying not to puke, out in the boonies of the Orion Arm, inside the Oort cloud, falling endlessly around an average second-generation yellow star we've named Sol. Three planets out, riding upside down and right-side up on the Earth, on the American continent, in the fat, united, greedy states of Lion America. Woohoo! East Coast, down south in North Carolina. Right dab in the middle, or Piedmont. Durham County, in a backwoods little town called Bahama in a field beside my mommy's house. <laughs> Which is all to say we have no idea where we really are in time or space, if we are, or even what we really mean by are. So out of this place of abysmal ignorance, let's get started. Over to you, Teresa. I
1: really liked that intro because I, when you read it, I felt like I was falling out of the universe. and. Yeah,
0: when you said that, it kind of reminded me of uh, the beginning of Contact with Jodie Foster, written by Carl Sagan, that movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you won't know what I'm talking about, but it's really cool. It's kind of
1: like that. <laughs> I haven't seen it, I don't think. You should. <clears throat> the name of this episode, Ad Shashir, we've mentioned in a couple previous podcasts as our location, and um, we kind of started saying like that occupied lands of thing because we were listening to other podcasts and they were doing it.
0: and Green Flame particularly.
1: And um, I wanted to learn a little bit more about this place, this occupied land, and not just be some one other pretentious asshole that's saying things and not really meaning anything behind it.
0: Yeah, I started having concerns about that. Like right away, one of the things that I had a concern about that we've tried to address, as we said, occupied lands of, is throwing in some plants and animals. Because I found it right away, if we talk about the tribe that used to live here, so uh, anthropocentric. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't feel like we as a colonizing empire own this. And I don't really feel like the indigenous people, you know, in any sense, any, uh, true sense of the word own that land. So that's one thing I wanted to address. And, uh, yeah, another thing we've talked about is what does it mean to be part of the civilization? Like who are the native Americans right now? Um, you know, like there's a lot of talk about handing the land and I've talked about this myself quite a bit, handing the land back over to the indigenous peoples, but, um, at this point, the indigenous people, for all practical purposes that I can see, you know, having, you know, uh, read books, been on reservations, interacted with people, they're just people. We're all just people. So where civilization has gone, we've all been inducted into this way of life. So I can't imagine if we all all agreed, black, white, everybody not from this country, not Native American, agreed to leave this country, hand it back over. Of course, the less population would be a whole a big boon for the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it seems to me that they would not turn away from industrial society. They've been poisoned and indoctrinated by the same civilization that runs through our veins. So,
1: not yeah. to mention the land base has been completely screwed. So.
0: Yeah, and I think they might continue to screw it kind of the way we do. I mean, because we all live this way at this point. So, yeah, I want to get out of that racial mindset. I'm really working on that because I feel like we keep getting shoved into this racial mindset, a history of white this, black that, Indian that, but really it keeps us divided because we have a common cause and a common problem, and one of those problems is civilization. And uh, we're all stuck in it right now, um, some of us trying to find our way out.
1: Yeah, and uh, shit, I was going to say something probably really profound and important. Um, so Ad Shashir, uh, basically that name is a name of a village that may or may not have included several different tribes of Indians that had all kind of come together. And through the research, it's interesting because um, when you start to look into things, it's often like this rabbit hole that's like, oh, what's this? Oh God, I didn't, I had no idea of that. And, um, Mm you might not even find out exactly what you wanted to find out about your original question. And that's kind of how it went with Ad Shashir, because uh, we kind of have an idea of where the village may have been. And through learning about where that site may have been, we actually found that we are closer to maybe another site, Eno Town, um, that was home to the Eno Indians or the Haynok. Um And that's kind of closer to our uh, backyard of sorts, our backyard. Um, and I wanted to talk about that too. I wanted to talk about several things. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is I feel like everywhere we are is probably a site of some kind. Someone was doing something there in the past. And
0: I I just wanted to jump in there again, like my concern with the anthropomorphism. Um, You know, I wonder what we mean by when we say that, and what you mean. Like, I I wonder. I mean, we have such a foggy picture of what the history before colonization looks like. So, would a site include the way you're describing it, like in your own mind? I don't. I don't expect you to come up with the scholarly definition, but just what it means to you. Are you just talking about people using it?
1: Well, that's a good point because we are, um, you know, we are surrounded right now by all sorts of plants, trees, birds, worms, um, spiders, other things. And they are still here. So um, their story continues and we're just kind of a part of it. I guess I, I was focusing on the people because the people... Um, were the ones that lived and in, in named it Ad Shashir. And those are the people that were encountered by explorers, by colonizers um, in the 17th and 18th centuries.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify and mm-hmm. I wanted to also bring that up, you know, that like, I mean, my understanding is the population has grown quite a bit since the colonizers first got here. So chances are there were expanses of the land that maybe people didn't use that they were just happy to leave kind of uh, wild to nature. But of course, it's all speculation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess what I was thinking was it doesn't have to be a designated archaeological site to be something. I mean, I feel like where we are at right now, this probably was maybe like a a hunting ground or, or places where people foraged. Um, even though archaeologists haven't studied this land specifically. And that's all to say that wherever you might be sitting at, um, it doesn't have to be, you know, a book written about it or a name of the place, but that place has uh, a history and a specialness to it that you can begin to connect with. Um, and that is my segue into talking about um, this particular place where we have connected. And what that means to us. Did you want to say something?
0: No, I just giggle at the way you always uh, segue. Yeah, you always state your segues. Um, I but, would yeah. now
1: like to segue into my segue.
0: So I'm going to uh, respond to your segue. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, I was thinking about like what Teresa said about it, it was interesting because we thought this was going to be an episode about a whole lot of information about this town called Ad Shashir. And, uh, you know, Like some people might say in North Carolina, it was like trying to grab a greased pig. (laughs) It was like it eluded us, but it took us through all this different information, especially like Teresa's always the hardcore researcher. And she's uh, been reading this book on Durham and all kinds of interesting things came up that we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about because unless you live in Durham, it probably wouldn't mean much to you. But it was really fascinating for us to learn the history of these roads and everything. And like some of these roads are part of uh, an Indian trading path, a really old, like it went from Virginia to South Carolina, is that right?
1: Um, Augusta, Georgia, actually.
0: Wow, yeah. So this ancient trading path, nobody knows how old it is, but we drive on it every day. We just call it like Snow Hill Road and St. Mary's Road. and, uh...
1: And Interstate 85 actually parallels the Indian trading path. So it was a good route, I guess.
0: Yeah. And I found that so fascinating, you know, and uh, I was a caretaker of a uh, old house called Lee Farm for two years of my life, two of some of the best years of my life. Um, And it was this beautiful house to live in. And I come to find out that that was in this book. It is the oldest standing house in the County of Durham. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I found that pretty cool that I have this personal relationship with uh, that part of history.
1: Yeah. And, um, God, yeah, there's just so much to talk about. I I feel like I want to I do want to brush on this though because for a number of episodes I've been trying to figure out where to fit this in, and that's the term sacred hoop. And we've talked about the sacred hoop before, I think in more of a like an esoteric or spiritual way. Like the, the hoop was broken, like the tribe, the, the spirit of community was broken. But then we also encountered uh, the hoop mindset when it comes to wild tending.
0: Yeah, I know. Uh, I can't remember her name, but anybody that, studied, that studies wild tending... Is it
1: Phoenicia Phoen- Medrano? Say it again? Phoenicia Medrano.
0: That sounds right. And she's recently passed away. Um, she was also known as the Tranny Granny, but she was a huge teacher... Um, of wild tending. And I found this so fascinating because I always thought the sacred hoop was more like a spiritual thing, which it also is, you know, like a uh, the cycles of life, the passing down of wisdom, the seasons, the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But to find out that like so many things, it has a physical, practical counterpart, which, you know, I'm pass yeah, this yeah. back over to you. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I thought that was really neat. Like, wow, you know, like it's the same thing. Like it's the philosophy applied. You know, when I uh, escaping society in five easy steps, one of the the fourth step I talked about was animism, learning to hear the voices around you, learning to communicate, and that bushcraft ideally should be built on that. And I feel like that's kind of what's going on here. You know, the sacred hoop is an animistic belief, an understanding of cycles of sustainability, a different way of treating time, and then the bushcraft aspect. You know, gathering your food, how you move on the landscape is the manifestation of this idea. So I just thought that was really deep to get into to start learning this other aspect of the sacred hoop.
1: This past spring, I think it might have been early spring, which is kind of a not great time to start forging paths as uh, as I found out. Um, because it's the beginning of the growing season and then you're just fighting nature the whole time you're trying to, to make a path somewhere. But, uh, Gumby was, um, he was dabbling in making paths and made many nice paths all around this area where we generally stay at in Durham. And we walked those paths, we foraged on those paths, we felt connected on those paths, to the east, to the south, and to the west, and the north was kind of a, a paved road, so I didn't feel as much of a connection. But maybe you know we could have um, gone that direction a little bit more and felt something as well. And that, to me, is our sacred hoop. In fact, Gumby talked about like maybe sometime we could uh, connect those paths that were in the different direction and actually make a giant circle. And, and how cool would that be to, to be able to um, just move about the land in this path and, and connecting more with the birds and the trees and the plants, et cetera, the water.
0: And that you need that sacred hoop, not just for your philosophy and beliefs, but how to move across the landscape in a sustainable way, like Often sacred hoops are connected. Like uh, I learned this at Tom Brown's Sharking Nature and Wilderness Survival School. Hey-o. And uh, in one of the survival classes, he was showing us like if this is your base camp, he made a little X on the board, you might want to do a route like this. And he'd draw a big circle. And then the next day you do this route, draw a big circle. And when he got done, it looked like a four leaf clover. Huh. And in that way, you're not going every day to use resources at the same place. What he drew was a series of sacred hoops, which, of course, are all combined into a bigger mm. sacred hoop, which, of course, is hoops within hoops within hoops. We're all interconnected. So, you know, all this stuff really came together um, with this wild tending uh, practical use of the, the sacred hoop in, in like where you move to gather and stuff like that.
1: And I don't really consider myself a wild tender, but I just I I found that to be of interest to me, like the physical hoop. And that leads me to talk about uh, our connection with this land and how we felt when we kind of had to leave this area because it just gets so freaking hot and not just hot, the bugs, the poison ivy. I mean, just everything starts to turn on you at a certain point in the central part of North Carolina.
0: Yeah, it was like we had our smaller sacred hoops here, and then our larger sacred hoop is uh, includes the mountains. It's a seasonal hoop.
1: Yeah, and if you're going to have to leave your area where you feel really connected, it's nice to have that summer home, or for some people, that winter home that you could go to. And how many times, if, if you study indigenous people... <laughs> Consider this... Um, how many times do you hear about that they kind of had this area where they either went for hunting at a certain time of year or they went to this other area because it was it was more livable. I mean, that's just it. Like, if you don't live inside an air-conditioned bubble, you start to realize, or heated bubble, you start to realize, like, sometimes this shit gets hard. And even though indigenous people, Indians, were probably... Um, you know, I guess more in tune with that, I still feel like it's just a smart thing to do, to have another place to go when your when your area just gets a little bit too hostile for you. So there was that, uh kind of realization that we are semi-nomadic, and if you're going to have to be semi-nomadic, to have another place that you can go and get to learn at that season.
0: And I'd add, as far as hostility goes, kind of from a prepper mindset as well, that it's good to have another place, because you know the unexpected could happen to that place you feel safe and secure in, and it's really good to have another place you're familiar with and are familiar with the resources. And before we move away from wild tending in the sacred hoop too much, um, I want to plug uh, Kelly Moody's podcast, uh, Ground Shots. Um, She's got a lot of good interviews with wild tenders. And uh, if you're interested in the sacred hoop and wild tending, that's one of the better resources we've found. Um, Some of her podcasts are boring as hell, not that ours ever are. (laughs) But if you look for the information you're after, um, it's really good and, and really good information and talking to people that are really knowledgeable about this stuff.
1: Yeah, and sometimes those podcasts that are kind of like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I'm listening to this person." But then they say something and you're like, "Huh. Yeah. That's a really interesting insight."
0: Unlike us who we are uh, just a couple of van hobos blowing our mouths off, but uh <laughs> we are what
1: we are. Yeah. So we went to the mountains this summer, as you probably have listened to in our podcasts, and when we came back, um there was something new about our our space. There really is not our space uh if you would ask the authorities, because we don't own any of it.
0: And that's a whole uh, philosophical discussion in itself, is what makes something yours, you know, and what we mean by that. I kind of feel like it is my space, not in an ownership, proprietary uh, domination way, but like in my relationship with it.
1: Yeah, Gumby, you've had a connection with this particular road, with this land For for... at least
0: 22 years.
1: And I've been feeling like a connection to this land for maybe two, three years, but I'd say three or four almost Uh, fell. Okay. You would say that, but yeah. (laughs) So
0: I'm a guy, everything seems longer to me. Uh...
1: So, um, that's all to say that, you know, we really feel like there's something growing here within us and, and reaching out like tendrils, you know, like we talked about in that one episode, how, oh, the, um, native literacy with the, Oh, the birds. What was it called?
0: Native literacy songs.
1: Yeah, native literacy songs. And how, like, if you see this bird or or anything, like, you see this tree and you recognize it, um, you kind of grow an attachment to it, like a string, and then it becomes uh, a bigger string, like a rope, eventually. So I felt like that about this land. And when we came back, there were signs <laughs> up everywhere: um, no trespassing, no hunting. Um, which we don't hunt. Uh, We do forage. We do trespass. This rich guy
0: (laughs) that recently built his giant house, uh, like across from where we stay. And he's just been like rude, inhospitable since we've met him. Uh, Never waves. You know, anytime we pass him on the road, we wave and he snubs us. And that's kind of our uh, thing. It's our thing we do. And uh, he sprays poison all over the road on the ant hills. He sprays poison in his yard. It smells like a swimming pool. He sets up camera and throws out corn. Like, I'm not against hunting, but there's a way to do it. I mean, you, you got to do what you got to do to feed yourself. This guy ain't going hungry, I promise you. It's just he wants to murder something and he wants it to be as easy as possible. So there's so many things about this guy that I don't like. But one of the things Teresa and I were talking about this morning is it gives us sort of a window and I'm not trying to say this is what happened to the Indians and like it's it's like that with us but I feel like any experience personal experience in your life that gives you even the slightest doorway into compassion empathy understanding with something that happened to another group of people um, it should be explored and so I feel like I get just the slightest window into what it might be like to have a relationship with land and then to begin to feel colonized people that don't Live on this land, put up no trespassing signs here. So that's just they even, put up
1: cameras, hunting cameras.
0: Well, then there's that guy, he does live on this land, but he's new to this land and he, he just doesn't, moved on he to doesn't this own land. it. He just moved on to this land and he's got cameras like in places that he doesn't own. So the state's putting up no trespassing signs, um, the city, and then you got this guy. So I feel like I've got like a little bit of that feeling of like I have a connection to this land, half of my life has watched this land change and grow. And I've had sit spots out here. I've had teachers. I've had lessons. I've learned um, brown thrashers. I've learned different birds. I've learned so much. I have a relationship, roots in this land. And to feel like just somebody can show up and uh, use their power and authority that is all abstract, that they invented, that really has nothing to do with the land itself, and threaten me and maybe one day run me off. But then I started thinking it also, you know, since we are in a colonizing empire. We're still participating in it, and presumably anybody listening to us is as well. You're still one of the colonizers. We are not free of this. There's bound to be a time in your life, and it's probably already happened, and there's bound to be more times that you're going to be the person winding up on land that other people already feel roots and a relationship with, and how important it is to, if you have to do that, if you haven't found your way, another alternative to at least try to do it in a good way. This asshole has not shown <laughs> any willingness to be neighborly. So just keep in mind, like, man, I, I can imagine if he had moved in and like come over here with like a, a pie or something like, hey, I just wanted to introduce myself and, uh, you know, talk about the land a little bit. Like, you know, here's what I like to do. It would be a whole different relationship with this guy. So th- I felt like there was a dual lesson in his presence here for me, what it feels like a little bit to... Feel your land pulled out from under you, even though, you know, of course, it's not our land. And also, like, if you got to be on that other end, try to minimize the impact of being an asshole. Don't don't come in entitled. Um, I feel like even the earliest colonizers, even though it was a political ploy, you know, so they didn't get killed <laughs> right away to make friends, to show up with gifts. You know, there's a way to even between tribes, you know. Uh, People tend to go to another tribe if they had to visit or communicate with some kind of gift, some kind of offering. There's a good way to do things. And we just don't do that nearly enough in our culture. We're just so damn entitled. Once we sign the deed, once we pay the money, it's like, well, that's it. It's mine. Tough (laughs) shit. You got a problem with it? I'll call the cops if you give me a problem. And what a horrible way that is to be. Indeed. And Teresa, uh, don't follow my uh, thread here if you want to take, take this in another direction. But uh, I was kind of thinking, you know, we wanted to talk about this land that we have a relationship with. We spent half of our time in the mountains, which is kind of a newer thing for us, past couple of years. And I have like a long relationship with uh, the city of Durham. And Teresa has slightly of a newer, but still a pretty long relationship with the city of Durham. So we kind of both think of this as like home. So I was wondering if there's anything you wanted to talk about, like, uh, in your research about the very beginning, the history of this land. Like, for instance, one thing I learned a long time ago is uh, they believe that during the coldest time of the Ice Age, the glaciers reached really far down here, but stopped about right here. So if we could go back in time, I don't know what that would be like, 10,000 years ago or so, um, that we would travel just a little ways North, maybe into Virginia and start seeing glaciers. And that had a huge impact on the soil, the topography, the whole nature of this land. The fact that this was not under glaciers makes North Carolina, makes my home, makes Durham a little bit unique compared to other places. That's one of the big factors and that there were like woolly mammoths here and bison right up until the time of the colonizers and beyond, you know, like Buffalo were forging trails. They had a huge impact on this landscape. There's a park we go to all the time here in Durham, West Point on the Eno, and it's got a trail called Buffalo Trail, and it's a really deep trench, and it turns out that was actually made by buffalo.
1: Yeah, I will geek out a little bit on stuff that I read, but you kind of covered it in your own... Geek away, girl! Yeah. All right, so um, there was substantial climatic and vegetational change occurring in the whole Southeast Atlantic region where we are. Um, between the late Pleistocene, when humans first entered the Piedmont region, and present.
0: According to the archaeologists.
1: According to the archaeologists. I always like
0: to acknowledge that other story. You know, the native tribes believe that they got here in a different way. That's just the scientific point of view, and who knows what reality is.
1: Yeah, who knows how many times this earth has been reborn. and.
0: Yeah. I mean, for all I know, a turtle did get some mud put on her back, and that's where America came from, and those people came from a hole in the sky from another you know, world.
1: So because of, you know, what Gumby was talking about, the deglaciation that began approximately 14,000 years ago, um, when a comparatively rapid warming trend ameliorated the glacial climates. And you've talked before about how, had this land not been disturbed by the agriculture that the, what would they call it, climax forest? Would be oak chestnut or oak hickory?
0: It's That's really debatable, but let's see. There Even the idea of a climax forest is debatable, mm-hmm. but it's got something to it. So if you leave a forest alone, it does reach a state of a, like, it could take hundreds of years of a healthy forest, a mature forest, a climax forest. That most of the, when you look around your landscape, anybody hearing these words, this is probably true. You're looking at a disturbed environment. You're not looking at old growth, healthy climax forest. You're looking at an environment trying to heal and move closer to that. So, yeah, I uh, I believe, and again, feel free to correct us, uh, but I think this was an oak chestnut forest before the blight in the 20s, maybe 30s. And the hickories were poised to kind of, you know, nature's beautiful the way it works. Like, there's so many different things um, kind of using the same resources and everything so much diversity that if a huge thing happens like a whole species falls that another species is poised to fill the niche to kind of buffer the impact of that so the hickories moved in and so now a mature forest where we live I believe is an oak hickory forest
1: like the canopy would be full of oaks and hickories
0: oaks and hickories those are the dominant trees making up the canopy and when you see like uh A lot of pines, for instance, it's a sign that there's been a disturbance of some kind. And if left alone, if whatever that disturbance is, not always human, but whatever the disturbance is, it would probably move towards oak hickory.
1: So in the geological record, it's been shown that um, right after the deglaciation, the glaciers were retreating, this was pine spruce parkland or forest. And then it transitioned into northern hardwood trees. And then... After that, around um, 9,500 to 7,000 years ago, started to become more oak hickory and or oak pine, um, depending on the the changes in the landscape. The fauna, as Gumby mentioned, some of them um, bear, black bear in particular, buffalo, elk, wolf, and panther, all of which are no longer common here, although bears seem to be maybe moving back.
0: And the Carolina parakeet, which has pretty recently been extirpated from this area.
1: The passenger pigeon. Yeah. White-tailed deer, beaver, raccoon, squirrel, rabbit, muskrat, opossum, red fox, gray fox, turkey, quail, morning dove, woodpecker, red-winged blackbirds, mallards, wood ducks, black ducks, and also fish, including catfish, sunfish, and gar turtles, frogs, snakes, and freshwater mussels. And that's all to say these were potential food sources in this area for people who were either transient. um, There were a lot of transient camps, campsites. How is that? Sorry.
0: And teachers. I mean, not just food sources. Oh, yes. I'm like, as our listeners know, I'm not a very scientific minded person. So I, I always like try to Kind of keep us from getting too far off on the resources. I hate that word, yeah.
1: resources. You're right, though. You're right. Um, and what they found uh, through a lot of these kind of transient camps or seasonal camps is that in this region, the Piedmont, there seemed to be evidence that people came here in the fall or winter, which... I gotta say, is kind of our plan, too. Um, we do stay, you know, into, like, early and sometimes into late spring. Like, we stay, like, way too long here. Um, but they understand this because of certain foods that were left in the campsite. Evidence, persimmons, so the persimmon seeds, hickory nuts, as well as white-tailed deer and other um, foods, food sources. So I just found that to be pretty interesting that we're kind of following the same pattern. And that got me to thinking about other ways in which we've kind of explored the uh, the ways they call, you know, primitive skills. I don't really like that word. Um, ways from our ancestors. So we were talking about um, possibly building a semi-permanent structure in the woods here. And where we would put that? Would we put it closer to the floodplain so we'd be closer to the water? Um, Would we put it up on the ridge? But then you have to be, you know, concerned with how cold and windy it gets on the ridge. And so they found that a lot of the sites that people were using thousands of years ago were either on the tops of ridges or the toes of ridges. So I guess maybe depending on the season, depending on why they were here and when they were here that's where they would put their campsites.
0: Yeah. And Teresa was making the observation that like, it's interesting the way we live. I mean, we're not living like indigenous people, of course, but it gives us a unique insight into some of this stuff. You know, like when we come to a place and they say the village might be here, we're finding places to camp and bathe and gather water and thing and And forage. forage all the time. And, um, it's really interesting to have that viewpoint, to look and like, oh, all right, yeah, I could buy that. The river's right here. Like, yeah, this is, you know, a place I might set up camp. And uh, it was interesting. We went to Historic Stagville, which is this old plantation farmhouse. And we were asking some questions, like most of the people there that do tours are focused on um, teaching about enslaved people. So that's the time period they really focused on. And we had questions about the indigenous uh, people before, which they didn't have as much information about. But um, one of the possible sites for Eno Town, which is another town around here, like Teresa said, that we may be closer to than Achishir, um, could be right there. And I thought about Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. And she said that the colonists were not good at taming land they were good at exterminating people. <laughs> so where the people already had cleared some land, had a farm going for instance, that's where the colonists would often set up their places. So when we looked around, it made perfect sense. If there's an Eno town here, a place where they apparently like had this game they played that required like a little bit of a field,
1: you yeah, know. Yeah, Chenko. Like... They had like uh this game that, yeah, it was like a bowling green or some sort of cleared field for the game.
0: Yeah, so it it really fit. It's like, I bet that's where they set up their plantation because there was already some cleared land here and then they could get a foothold, a strong place, you know, because some of the work's already done and then just spread.
1: And no matter if it were the Indians or the um, colonizers, it was a really good idea to be near any sort of trading path, any sort of footpath or, or road. Um, so on this historic Stagville site, they don't have a, you know, a definitive source that's, you know, studied roads, but there is what looks to be a road. And one of the other key things, um, if you've seen old roads, this looks like an old road, uh, something else are trees that have been bent away from the road. They're like tree markers, um, so that you know which way to go. And they kind of look like somebody at, at one point took the tree and like bent it over or like pulled it. So it's kind of got like an elbow or turn in it. And sure enough, there's one of those trees that's dead, but it was preserved there for whatever reason. It's just there still. Um, I don't know how long it's been dead, but right next to what looks like the old road. So that was pretty interesting.
0: Mm -hmm. It was also interesting that when we're studying, uh, What tribes, um, they said in Ad Shashir that the Eno tribe, the uh, Shakori tribe, um, it it seemed to be a place that tribes overlapped, like possibly a place of, uh, you know, camaraderie and trade, you know, like they might have their own village, like this is for us, this is where we go to be around Eno, but this village is more of a place, like more of a uh, marketplace sounds so kind of capitalist but sort of like that you know more common area um and i found that interesting and then like there's this guy that explored this area here in north carolina he was like one of the first europeans to explore and write down what he was exploring john lawson Mm -hmm. and uh he had a recorded uh wrote about visiting ad shashir and um it was like really not long after that like what 20 years or so that like it's gone. Like there's just no record. Like it's, it seemed to have disappeared.
1: Yeah. It wasn't long after it because they described, um, the leader when John Lawson went through was Eno Will and Eno being, um, one of the Indian tribes. And then a few decades later, Eno Will was described by William Byrd when they were doing the survey for the dividing line between, um, Virginia and North Carolina. I think that's what it was. Um Shako will and Shako is uh an, well I don't want to say it's an abbreviation but evidently the word re is the like the shako Indian so Shakori is the shako Indians so Shako will was Eno will supposedly that's what they're saying um from these documents and he was still alive but he <laughs> he had succumbed to um the spirits of, uh, rum and, and, and whiskey and all of that. So not only had diseases decimated the people, um, who lived on this land and many other areas, uh, but they had tried to like join together, like, well, we've only got 14 of our people. You've got 20 of your people, you know, we can get together and still retain our, our language as much as we can, but we'll live together for, for safety and for, for practical purposes.
0: And what general time period are we talking about?
1: Uh, I believe the 1670-ish area of time.
0: Yeah, and somewhere around here, like going into the 1700s, I know there was a huge uh, push on the Tuscarora, like kind of the bigger umbrella of central um, North Carolina. In a broad way, the big tribe here was the Tuscarora. The Cherokee were like towards the mountains, and which tribe was towards the the east coast? Mm. Croatoan?
1: Uh, The Croatan, maybe, and then to the south, maybe the Catawba.
0: Yeah, so the Tuscarora had to leave, and so that was probably related to, like, Adjashir being abandoned. And I know the Tuscarora, um, for the most part, banded together and moved all the way up north to join the Haudenosaunee around, like, the New York area. They became the six of the uh, five and then six confederated tribes, and they were a huge force to be reckoned with. There were many battles against the uh, colonialists. Um, right up to George George Washington's Day and beyond um, with that group. So that's what happened to a lot of the the tribes and the indigenous people right here.
1: And there's one other tribe that I haven't mentioned yet, I think, that's a little to the west of us, the Okanichi or the Ochanichi. I'm not sure how they say it, but um, they're still a tribe there. And uh, so I reached out to the tribe. I just, I mean, I emailed them. It's, you know, pandemic, et cetera. I don't want to be the person that like takes out the remaining Indians.
0: Yeah. Don't be another white, sick white person. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, not that I'm sick, but who knows? Um, so I reached out to them and they did write back, like, we'll, we'll consider this, like, we'll kind of talk amongst ourselves and see what we could tell you, anything we know about Ad Shashir, because, um, Another individual who is uh, not a spokesperson for Okaneechi tribe, but she said that it's quite possible that the people who lived in Shashir were absorbed into the Okaneechi tribe. Like I said, you know, if you've got 30 people left and that is your, that's it, that's your tribe. And then there's this other tribe that has like 80 or 100 people. I mean, it just makes sense. Like, what are you going to do?
0: Yeah. And she was uh, pointed out that like some of the history that we might study is wrong. You know, she wanted to emphasize that Adjashir was not a tribe. It was a place, which we we, we already knew. Um, But it's interesting with that reaction because we already know, like we think a lot and study a lot about history and realize it's always biased. Mm -hmm. There's no true history. It depends on which place you want to stand and look at history. So it's interesting that like you know, that got pointed out that this history is wrong, but nobody's got the true history because we're talking about a whole different mindset. We talked a little bit about this at the uh, end of Mile Marker 70. But, uh, yeah, no native person can really fill in that history um, because before the colonists got here, you know, nobody was writing it down. History was not treated in this way. So it's sort of put in what our culture dismissively calls mythology, and then trying to staple it to what we scientifically call true history. Yeah. And it's just a really like awkward fit. So even when you have people that are acknowledging like, oh, this, this bit of history is left out intentionally, or it's just missing, nobody can really fill it in, which is interesting, because you can't, you can't fit it into this box you're trying to shove it into. It's a whole different way of being and, and, and seeing.
1: Yeah, I mean if if you think about your day-to-day dealings in the world, when I say dealings like eating and and like where you lived, you might not necessarily even write it down because that's just your life. But when the colonizers started coming in, they were keeping track of who owned what land and where that ended and and who was trading what and what taxes were being um tithed to the people on the land. So that's where their records basically come from is like exchanges of money and, yeah. it, and all these documents that they have to have to keep track of who owns what.
0: And then when we get to the, the period in history uh, where Adshashir, Eno Town, these places seem to be abandoned. The colonists are moving in. Um, before this was Durham County, this was East Orange County. Mm-hmm. And Orange County still exists. It's our neighboring county, but it used to be much bigger. And, uh, we found some things interesting about Orange County. One is uh, it had a reputation I read this years ago for, for being full of assholes. <laughs> like people that were traveling would basically say, Don't stop there if you want to drink, you know, like if you if you can keep moving, keep moving. These are not people <laughs> to hang out with. And um, some of the first black people that lived here were free. They were free black people living in North Carolina, the South. They could vote.
1: Um, They could own land.
0: They could own land. You know, there was a, a lot more equality. Like I feel like history is either taught to completely dismiss people who are oppressed or to inflate, like only look at this one race. But either way, it keeps us divided. But here we have this history that we're uncovering that's a lot more convoluted and complicated. And I love that because what that does to me is draws us together like, oh, this was your problem here. Well, looky here, 100 years before, it was our problem, too. And looky here, 100 years in the future, it's both of our problems. Hmm. Why don't we get together and fix it? So I thought that was a really interesting thing that we uncovered in our research um, about Orange County. Oh, and another thing that you were telling me, Teresa, with your research at this time is as these colonies were uh, developing, that North Carolina was considered at one time the poorest of them, the most cut off from the rest.
1: That's a yeah. That's a yeah. Good, that's a good segue.
0: Like you were telling me that there were no like really main roads or whatever. Like if you were in North Carolina, you were in the boonies. Like you were just here. You were relying on the people in North Carolina. The other colonies were starting to like work together more, forge more roads, become a bigger thing. But North Carolina for a while was kind of like the the little ugly stepchild.
1: And here's why.
0: No offense if you're a stepchild. Oh,
1: and here's why. And again. I'm not a historian. I'm not trying to sound like I know everything, but um, we visited, as Gumby mentioned, this historic Stagville plantation yesterday. It was my first time going there, and it's like kind of right through the woods or right down the street from where we stay, so I'm kind of embarrassed that it has taken this long, and I just found out that this plantation, one of the biggest in North Carolina, uh was like 50 square miles, 50 square miles of plantation. Okay, uh, what does that mean in the in the bigger picture of things? That means that one family basically owned 50 square miles of land. So unless they needed a path to be made. No roads went through 50 square miles. No communities formed in those 50 square miles. No schools or churches were erected in the 50 square miles unless the family that owned that land decided to erect a chapel or church. So, Just as an example, this particular plantation, the guy moved here, he started out working in somebody else's store. He gained the knowledge of how to run a store. He opened up his own store, made money, bought land, decided that he was going to also have slaves to work his land, and through various business dealings, bought even more land. And when people started realizing around where this guy lived at, that They're kind of cut off. There's no culture coming in because he's buying up more and more land. They decided they were going to move. And because they were so desperate to get out and figure a way that they could prosper, because he was taking up all the land and it was kind of cutting them off, they left. He bought up their land at like a rock bottom price. So it expanded even more. And so this one person created a huge phenomenon. In this particular area of North Carolina, but it happened elsewhere too because there were other people who, just by virtue of being, you know, at the right place at the right time with maybe the right skin color, um, they bought up a shit ton of land and became ex- extremely rich in the process, pushing out, out everyone else.
0: Yeah, and while we're on the topic of uh, plantations and slave owners and uh, enslaved people you know, following this rabbit, this Ad Shishir rabbit, you know, and all the places it's taking us, we started learning some things about slavery that were interesting. Um, our culture likes to divide this up so strictly by color, the bad white guys, the oppressed black people. Um, and we focus on one type of slavery, chattel slavery. And I think there's an agenda behind that. Well, I know there's an agenda behind that. But part of that agenda, I believe, is to focus on the slavery that looks the least like what we have now, because the narrative needs to be that we have moved forward, that things have gotten better. Um, But what we found is before chattel slavery really got a foothold, there was indentured servitude, which was, you know, a form of slavery.
1: Yeah, my mom, uh, my parents are visiting right now. And my mom was telling us about how uh, a comedian was saying like, He's a black comedian. His people didn't come here by choice. They weren't immigrants. And for the most part, that is true. However, if you're going to talk about history, let's not forget that there are exceptions, always exceptions.
0: Yeah, like uh, Anthony Johnson is a really interesting historical figure. Um, With indentured servitude, he was a slave at one time and bought his freedom and uh, ended up becoming a person of like a good high reputation in around Virginia, Northampton, and Northampton, Virginia, and he brought brought slaves. It was it was somewhat of a a strategy back then. He even brought his own son over as an indentured servant because back then you were given land for how many servants you had. So it was good strategy, you know, like to even bring over your own family members as slaves. And at one time he had I think one black indentured servant and multiple white people.
1: Four indentured servants who were white.
0: Four indentured who were white.
1: And remember, these indentured servants, you know, this is not chattel slavery. These are people that want to come here. So that's a difference. um, And they don't have money to come here. So they are saying, we will work for you. And because we're working for you, you're giving us room and board. And eventually at the end of our four or seven years of servitude, we can work to purchase our freedom. And then like this guy, Anthony Johnson, he not only purchased his freedom and his wife's freedom and then his son's freedom, but he also purchased uh, a couple hundred acres of land mm-hmm. along with uh, the the documents, the, uh, what am I trying to say? The indentured servitude of of several, um, of several people that wanted to come over here. So I'm not saying that slaves were immigrants. I'm saying simply that there were, in fact, people coming over here who had black skin who were choosing to come over here to have a possible um, opportunity.
0: Yeah, and all history, as we acknowledged, is uh, pushing an agenda, but I prefer studying this kind of history that we're discussing right now, because the agenda that I see that it pushes is we're all in this together. When I start looking at history, I uncover multiple races of people who participated in slavery, who were willing to own slaves. I see multiple races of people who were enslaved themselves with different kinds of slavery. You know, like, let's not just focus on one kind of slavery. There are, in fact, many kinds of slavery that still exist today. And uh I find people of multiple races that were willing to fight for slavery and fight against slavery, John Brown. Um, so to me, this is such a better story. It's not the true story. There's no such thing as the true story. But this story brings us together and it makes us strong. And I feel like this is the one story that over and over, as they keep redefining history, they don't want us to telling this story
1: they don't want us to get together they
0: don't want us united against the thing that always imposes this on us which is civilization which is government etc monopoly uh, the economy um, you name it so yeah that's what I, I you know you can be called a racist for bringing up some of these things we just said um, you know it's so politically incorrect especially nowadays when so many things are so supercharged but um, this is the agenda I want to push forward. That we have a common enemy and a common cause, and uh, wouldn't it be beautiful if we could work more towards that?
1: Yeah, because I'm, I'm just thinking about this historic Stagville plantation. Out of all the people that lived in North Carolina or the the land that became North Carolina, this was an exception, and this guy was definitely a slaveholder. I mean, he had like 900 slaves in various quarters on his plantation properties that weren't just in Durham County. They spread all throughout this area of North Carolina. And I'm not saying that it was good. I'm not saying that, oh, you know, we should give him a pass. No, I'm
0: saying it's bad.
1: Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is there were a lot more people back then that we don't talk about who were um, interacting, who were free blacks, who, you know, they became victims of rich people.
0: And who does it serve nowadays to not teach anybody, whites and blacks, about a history where some of the black people indeed were capable tradesmen, were immigrants, were people who chose to come over here? What do you think it does to people to teach them no, you are a victim.
1: And you're going to remain a victim. There is nothing
0: but victims in your history. Your ancestors were all property. They fought this. They were crushed by this. And uh, you, by the way, you better vote for this guy because he's the one that sees things this way. And because you're a victim, wha- we're going to like do this and that for you that keeps you dependent. It's such a disempowering narrative, which is part of that ugliness, part of that divisiveness. even when I'm taking this Trump money, you know, this, uh, 1200 <laughs> bucks, which I have accepted. But
1: you haven't gotten yet.
0: I haven't gotten it yet. Yeah. <laughs> so even that's kind of disempowering. Anytime you're getting a handout, you know, sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes you just got to suck it up and, you know, we had hard times. You got to do what you got to do. But, uh, yeah, this whole welfare state thing, this whole thing that's built on these premises, it's very disempowering. And I think that's intentional. And, uh, you know our time's getting short, so I want to move this forward. Um, you know we were talking about the, uh, I always I always say, call it Bennett. It's not Bennett. Benahan? Benahan place.
1: So, That's the uh, historic Stagville plantation we're mentioning.
0: So Teresa, since our time is short and to move us forward, you know especially anything related to Shashir, which uh, as we said is a slippery pig, um, what do you want to make sure that we uh, we share with our listeners?
1: Huh. Well, I really wanted to, um, again, talk about, like, why, like, who cares? Like, why should we be talking about the place where we are? And why should you, like, potentially look into what land you're on? What, what connections you could forge? what that What that would look like? And I don't know, just like to me, it was it was really interesting. It's still interesting to learn about this land and to connect with it. I was even reading about um, someone i I think this guy's name last name was Hudson, probably a um anthropologist or something. He was studying the Creek Indians, which I think are around here. I didn't look at the map before we turned the the iPad on. Um, they used uh, willow oak as one of their most powerful medicines. And spicebush, they made a tea that uh, they boiled the branches of spicebush to purify their blood. They used red cedar, again, boiled and ingested as a spring tonic, used for aches and pains as well as burned as incense. Goldenrod flowers smoked for their fragrance. The tender ends of grapevine used to cure the deer disease, whatever that was. And uh, Cherokee people used slippery elm bark to help pregnant women for uh, an easier delivery. These type of things are that's our heritage. Like I'm not Creek and I am not Cherokee, but I feel like now that I'm on this land, this is my heritage of sorts. I'm not trying to appropriate it. I'm just saying this is where I am right now. What else am I supposed to do?
0: Yeah, the Cherokee people, who by the way were one of the five civilized tribes, which means that these tribes, their strategy was all right, we see the writing on the wall. Let's just try to go along with it so we can survive as a people. And in part of that civilizing, um, they had slaves. They they were slaveholders on the Cherokee uh, territory and um, they were trying to accumulate wealth and get money and, you know, I guess you can't have much of a plantation in the mountains, but uh, you got to have some kind of agriculture going to make a slave worth it. And this was right before the Trail of Tears. So history is really a lot more convoluted um, than we often entertain. And uh, again, that goes back to when we started talking about, like, you know, just handing the land back. Like, a word that's come up a few times, um, Jessica from Berkeley, California brought this word up. And then a, a little later, I heard Kelly Moody, or who she was interviewing on Ground Shots, her podcast, bring up this word re indigenize. So I think it's not just a matter of, like, Going and talking to the indigenous people who now have become us. I mean, we all have the same sicknesses at this point. We've been civilized. We're all the civilized tribe, and we're not a tribe. Mm. Um, It's a matter of re-indigenizing ourselves. For instance, you know, no matter how much you regret colonization and don't want to support it, where the hell are you going to go? You're going to go back to Europe? Is that your home now? I don't know (laughs) a damn thing about Europe. If I have a home, it's here. So, I think my best choice, taking all that together, is not to just like, oh, I need to hand this back over to them. Because for all I know, if I hand it back over to somebody that has Tuscarora blood, they might be a rich asshole. They might be more of a rich asshole than I ever was. Yeah, we've got. They might want to develop this land and put a freaking plantation here themselves.
1: We've got um, Indian tribes currently fighting over who gets to put a casino in a a very um, important crossroads. In North yeah. Carolina.
0: So I feel like what we need to do, instead of looking for other people to give us, a, I don't know, a pass or I don't know what we're looking for, a with blessing. all this, this white <laughs> guilt. We need to change ourselves, and that seems to be the one thing we will adopt any any philosophy, anything, as long as it doesn't involve any serious serious deep changes in our lifestyle. But that's what we need to do. We've got to reindigenize. We've got to become the Native Americans. Um, you know, it'd be different if we were in Europe, I wouldn't be, I I don't know what I'd be saying to tell you the truth, Mm -hmm. but, uh, it's a whole different thing. We're already here. We've got to work with what we've got. There's so many regretful things in history that I I don't support now. I can't truthfully tell you what I would have thought back then. Um, but I feel like what we need to work on is re-indigenizing ourselves, developing our own relationship with this land, simplifying as much as we can, being as gentle on this land, recognizing that all these things are our neighbors, bringing that animism back. To me, this is all part of re-indigenizing. Giving up technology we don't need. There's so much that makes our lives worse, that does huge harm to the planet, that anybody can see with a little bit of research, that we could give up. We could just give it up. We don't need it. Even this iPad was given to me. So at first, I felt kind of good, like, oh, you know, uh, karma free. But the memory storage of our podcast mm. goes to a server farm yeah. and that itself is using a huge amount of electricity. There are people that are suffering. The land is suffering just so we can store our damn episodes. <laughs> We're not free of it. And we got to start looking really hard at all these things. To me, that's a big part of reindigenizing, And And uh, yeah, it's just got me thinking a lot about when I say occupied lands of like all the implications of that, what that means. Like, let's look closer.
1: I'll tell you something that I've, I've really been thinking about, especially as the season is starting to get cold, although damn, it's been hot the past couple of days. Good lord. Um, as we bathe in the creeks and streams and other bodies of water around here without soap, not even Dr. Bronner's.
0: And it still feels good.
1: And it still feels good. Um, you know, how easy it is to really feel connected by that simple action. Some people might not think it's that simple. Collecting rainwater. I would really like our listeners, if you really want to do something, it's so simple. Do this. Can I tell them? Go ahead. (laughs) Put out a container to catch rainwater. And it doesn't have to be big. It can be like a bowl, you know, a, a, a cup of some kind. Next time it's looking like rain or as it's starting to rain. And this water, I want you to drink. And if you don't feel comfortable drinking the rainwater from clouds, I want you to really look at what you're doing in your life because you're contributing to it.
0: So many people try to wiggle off the hook and say like they, they start talking about the things they can't do. Well, I don't know how to make a bow and hunt a deer with a bow and arrow. And even if I did, if everybody did that, we decimate the planet. That is a cop out. You know, I just want to like Teresa just said this and I want to throw it out too, you know, like, on a pretty day, skip a shower. Go take a bath in a creek. And I don't mean with soap. Just go there. And if there's something like your armpit, something you want a little extra like uh, exfoliation, take a little bit of creek sand. Just do it. Maybe do it every other day. There are so many easy, easy things that we could do. And with every little step you take, the next little step is easier. We could all do it. We could move closer to re-indigenizing, but we don't because we choose to focus on the thing that feels so far away we can't possibly do it, and we think that lets us off the hook. It's bullshit. We're we're lying to ourselves. And uh, another thing about learning about your land, I want to encourage everybody, like, you learn about your place. You learn about the land that you were on. You learn about the, the tribes that lived there, that the colonists came, because everything the colonists did, they did for you. They opened that up. They did for them and then their ancestors and finally you. When we buy land, when we live this way, we are legitimizing everything they did because this is what they were trying to build and get a foothold for. We're not turning away and saying, oh, that was wrong. Let's, you know, we're j- legitimizing it. Learn about the history of your land. Learn about how you got there. Learn about even the colonists. You know, It's fascinating to go back 50 years. And um, it was interesting. Like I was thinking, if you could jump back in time, it's 2020. You know, we're kind of getting a picture of what 1920 might have looked like here. And then if I could jump back another hundred years, 1820, and then 1720. Wow. Uh, Einstein talks about Gedanken experiments. Uh, using your imagination, for instance, he would imagine riding on a beam of light and what all the implications of that might be. And then he, you know, explored the science to. Uh, delve into it from that angle. But first it was imagination. When I use that Kadonkin experiment, that time travel experiment, it really emphasizes to me how much stuff has changed. Because if I went back from 2020 to 1920, that would be the most disorienting jump. (laughs) There are dams being built. There are lakes that would suddenly not be there. It'd be a river. I'd be completely like, whoa, I would have to really learn a lot. But then if I went back from 1920 to 1820, I'd find a lot more of the skills that I learned to survive in 1920 applicable in 1820. So that really gave me a window into how fast things are changing, what we're doing, you know, how much this is picking up. Um, And John Young, he's one of of my teachers, Wilderness Awareness School. But he talks about if you want to learn how to be a better survivalist and learn how to be on your land and really learn about your land, like take the time to go to the library, uh, get online nowadays. This was a long time ago that I heard him say this. Um, and learn about your land because you will learn many things, in particular these two things, which is some survival skills that have worked for the people that have lived in this climate at this area for hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, and you will also learn what's been lost because a lot of those skills, when you find out what they ate uh, what they did, how they lived,
1: how they extracted teeth yeah <laughs> with cane.
0: <laughs> you will learn that some of these things can't be done anymore and it's because of what we've done to the land. So those are two very powerful lessons that will come from your learning of the history of this land. For instance, chestnuts were a huge part of what people ate around here and uh, we you know through our economy, reasons of economic wealth, We brought over this globalization. We brought over stuff from another place, decimated the chestnuts, the chestnut blight. That's not something you can eat a lot. We found out how many salmon were in the rivers. Not anymore. Mm. Um, So it's a lot harder to live off this land than it used to be. And that's a sad commentary. But it's something that you should learn about your own land. Get involved. Get engaged. Plug in. Because you're there. You're calling it home. You might even own this land, you know, have bought it. You're even more uh, invested in that. Learn about it. It's really important. I just really want to encourage people to do that because it was also really interesting.
1: And I had mentioned, you know, like we were researching, at first I was researching Ad Shashir and there's not a whole lot written about it because of that that different take on what history is. So the books that you find are often written by, you know, descendants of colonizers and colonizers themselves. But I say, don't shy away from reading it because there can be bits and pieces of information within there that at least get you thinking. You might go, oh, okay, this person you know, has a different outlook on things than I do, but there's something in there.
0: Yeah. And that was their truth. It doesn't have to be your truth for you to learn from it. Exactly. Because those people were there. And even though your truth might not be their truth, like they were there, they saw it firsthand to dismiss it just offhand as foolish.
1: Is it okay if I read this now, or do you want to read this at the end?
0: I want to read it at the end. Oh,
1: okay. Okay. All right. Well then I think, I think I've said all I can really say without going into a bunch of details that probably aren't super exciting to our listeners, but I have learned a lot about, um, the ways that people lived on this land as much as I could from, from what, what we are calling colonizers. So, um, so yeah, I think I'm pretty much good to go.
0: Yeah. And one more thing I, uh, it gives me a little bit of a feeling of melancholy cuz we went to where Eno town another place where Eno town might be it's off this dirt road uh, this quiet road that's like got a farm pond and it just looks like kind of a scraggly little redneckville area that you see a lot in North Carolina and man you know like we thought a lot of, a little bit about like you know the archaeological site and i realized how much it's erased like it's almost like a different world I mean, I can't imagine those forests anymore. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine those giant white pines. I can't imagine what it was like to live here then. Um, so, yeah, there's that. There's that melancholy that went along with the study of history of just, um, gosh, how do we get back? So, anyway, for our listener right in, our last one of season six, we have... Tim from Maine. (laughs) So, all right, this is my last chance to do a Maine accent. Listening to Randall Carson now, he's on a rant about sandal-wearing cavemen with rocks tied to sticks that are blamed for the overkill of the megafauna 12,000 years ago. He doesn't support that theory. It was a cosmic catastrophe to blame. Yet today... We are for sure overfishing our ocean? Many streams here in Maine no longer will see the runs of Atlantic salmon of the past. They are not extinct but extant. We do have a stocking program, but it is faint to the effort. Mega trawlers running in the oceans impact this over greatly. So cops in the woods, game wardens I had one stop to check my fishing license a year ago. Usually I hunt and fish unmolested. This time I was solo in my canoe, just twaddling along in, along the shore, catching a few bass here and there. Routine, license check. I always wear my life jacket, PFD. It was warm, almost hot. The warden said I didn't have to wear the jacket, just have it in the boat. I never go without it on. The device doesn't work if you don't have it on. <laughs> I just thought he wasn't doing his job by telling me I didn't have to have it on. So... Who is policing the overharvest of our natural resources? <laughs> nope, we are encouraging it. We didn't overkill in our past, yet today it is rampant. And Tim wrote that in response to our podcast "Police State." We were talking about uh, policing and everything. And uh, yeah, one of the things about that over uh, the you know the overkill of the the cavemen. I like Derek Jensen's response to that, like whether it happened or not, which is debatable. That the indigenous people themselves. Um, created a mass extinction. He points out that when the Europeans got to these shores and they started writing about it, it was a land of abundance. They wrote on and on about the abundance of this land, which looks nothing like what we have here now. That's the important thing. Again, people will try to push you into an argument that twists things, it's really important to keep your focus on what counts. And what counts is however they lived, whatever they did, they apparently, if they did do that, they learned from it because the land was abundant when we got here and we have not done the same thing. And uh, yeah, I like uh, I like the word twaddling. We don't do a lot of twaddling down here in North Carolina, but I might try it because I kind of want to twaddle now. Anything you want to say to uh, Tim's message right there?
1: Uh, well, it, it doesn't really have to do with this episode, but the police state thing, yeah, I see more and more just like, why police and other law enforcement agencies pick on some things and not on others. They're completely, um, it, it doesn't work.
0: It's completely arbitrary.
1: Yeah. And it, and it just doesn't work. hmm I'll just say quickly, um, homeless people trashing dispersed free campsites, you know, you show up when basically any person that has a bit of common sense wouldn't be there. And then you just harass people that don't mess up the campsites. Yeah. Good job. Well done.
0: Yeah. And what we were just talking about, the douchebag across the street that's got all of his hunting equipment set up behind the no trespassing sign set up by the city. I mean,
1: they specifically say no hunting.
0: So people will say, and I think you're maybe saying this, Tim, that, uh, you know, if we didn't have the policing, like things would be worse and possibly, but the policing isn't working. We don't, to me, it's not a question of what's a little bit worse or a little bit better. We need something that works. And to me, what that is, is a philosophy, a, a thing we all share. Now I know that's very idealistic. I don't know how the hell we get there. I'm starting to think we can't get there. Some of us, some of us as individuals can get there. And I think we need to, if that's what we got.
1: Drink that cloud water,
0: drink that cloud water, you know, teach it to any, any kid that's around you that you can teach, uh, fewer adults. Cause we're so damn rigid and pig headed. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just learn what we can, and I think nature. I still have faith that nature's about to uh, do this for us. Nature's about <laughs> to give us the smackdown from hell. We're all crying about a virus. <laughs> My God, let's wait till see what happens next. And at any point, I feel like nature has been so gentle with us. You know, sending us this and that, and we've had so many invitations to change the way we live, and we don't. We're the ones escalating. So uh, I think whatever's left after it all. Gets said and done, those people will have to have a philosophy that works. We do not have that philosophy. Um,
1: Gumby shared this uh this story with me from a book that I had um, from Osho, and we were talking earlier about like taking. You really things. want
0: to read this thing? You're no, no, jumping no. Ahead.
1: I'm trying. I was just trying to put in there because Osho is um, often viewed as such a uh, a figure of. Um, what am I trying to say? He's, uh, there's there's things about him that people are like, oh, you're reading Osho. He's a crazy man. So anyway, I'm saying that, you know, we take things from history with a grain of salt. We take the good things. We take the gifts. And I just felt like this story was uh, a, a gift.
0: Well, thank you, Teresa. I'm not reading the story yet. Um, if you have any questions or comments, please uh, contact us. Um, yeah, we love questions or comments. Anything encouraging, anything that challenges us, anything that corrects us. Uh, we're wrong all the time. We listen to our podcasts and catch ourselves. So uh, use that as your test, you know. See if you can, like, catch us being wrong about something. Um, please visit our website, www.escapingsociety.weebly, b as in bones.com. Please visit our Facebook page, Escaping Society. Um, we have a YouTube channel and during our time off between seasons we're going to try to add a lot to our youtube channel so definitely check out um you know we try to share the things that aren't much fun to talk about but are easier shown like species mushrooms things like that and we have a donate button so if you are moved and able please uh donate um you know, we're listening to NPR, unfortunately, and they're doing their donate drive. So uh, you could be a sustainer for us. <laughs> so please donate if you are able. If you're not, um, yeah, just send us a comment or a story. We love that, too. That's a way to support us. Yeah. Um, Gosh, I was going to say something else. Oh, yeah, yeah. Consider donating if you've uh, gotten anything to think about. If you've been challenged, if you learned anything new, like any donation helps. So we really appreciate it. And uh, please rate us. You know, there's little stars at the bottom. Um, We like to get those ratings, too. So that kind of helps us know, like, what's working, what's not working. We're going to take a month off between seasons. So we will see you in, I guess that'll be like five weeks from now, we'll put out our Season Seven podcast, if we are not dead or in prison, <laughs> um, so, yeah, looking forward to that. and now, Teresa is just chomping at the bit for this story.
1: controversial that was the word I, I wanted
0: this for. to be the last words that came out of my mouth, so this is where I want to share this little story because I read this this morning and I was sharing it with Teresa, and it just like you know, so often. I feel like we kind of wonder what the hell we're doing. Like, what good does it do? People will often say that. Nobody's listening to you. And I often feel that. Like, what good does it do? What good does it do to put that white hot post on Facebook? Mm. What good does it do to, like, have these debates with people, like, around the fire when we're having discussions? What good does it do to put out these podcasts, you know, that are just going to people who, like, for the most part, already agree with us? Is it really changing anything? And I felt that, like, this little anecdote was beautiful. So here goes. A saint once heard about the evil city of Sodom. Being a saint, he went to the city with love and concern for its people. When he saw wickedness all about him, he began to preach and plead and protest daily. After many years of this, a friend asked, Why all the bother? You have not changed them a bit. The saint replied, In this city of madness and sin, I must go out to shout, to preach, and plead and protest. Not that they should become like me, but that I should not become like them.